Lord God, we need you. We need you to make yourself known to us. And you've chosen to make yourself known to us through words. <clears throat> and you've graciously revealed yourself to us through word. It's our point of connection with you, Lord God. I pray that you would honor that this morning. That the words I speak on your behalf would be your words. Your effective words that would enlighten hearts in a good way. Not the enlightenment way, but enlighten lives to see your goodness and glory, Lord God. I pray that the hearts of the people hearing my voice would respond to your word and experience, experience that life. I just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever been asked, have you ever been asked to do something that you really didn't want to do? Say a friend invited you to an opera. Not just any old opera, but Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, considered by many to be the greatest opera of all time. Some of us might be up for that, but I suspect many of you would not. You'd politely decline and tell your friend, I'd rather not. Opera's not my thing. It doesn't really tickle my fancy. It's not my cup of tea. Besides, I don't understand Italian anyway. We all have ways of backing out of things we really don't want to do. But what if the invitation is not to hear the music of the world's greatest opera, but to contemplate the words of the world's greatest book? And what if the person inviting isn't just a friendly acquaintance, but the Lord God himself? Imagine when God says, He who has ears, let him hear. Instead of lending an ear, you respond, no thanks, I'd rather not. Bible's not my thing, doesn't really tickle my fancy, not my cup of tea. And besides, I don't understand theology anyway. Would that be a wise response? Of course not. The word of God is not to be trifled with. It cannot be ignored, brushed off, or summarily dismissed. It holds sway over our lives, whether we want it to or not. So it would behoove us to listen. But herein lies the problem. Often, we don't want to hear God's word. We are distracted by other things and lack motivation to pay attention to what he is saying. Though we wouldn't deny our love for God, we fail to devote time to listen to what he has to say. 
And when we read a text in Scripture that says something like, Your commandments are my delight, we simply can't relate. Delighting in God's Word doesn't come easy. It takes work. It takes a concerted effort. One might fight for it. Indeed, we collectively need to fight for that delight. For this reason, the leadership team of Center Church has decided to focus on Psalm 119 this summer. There's no place in the Bible that inspires delight in God's Word as clearly and precisely as Psalm 119. Let's just listen to a sampling of what it contains. Here's a few verses. Verse 24 of Psalm 119. Your testimonies are my delight. Verse 48. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 140. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. These verses are dripping with delight. But then there are other verses in Psalm 119 which reveal a wholehearted determination, a fight to keep God's word central to life. Listen to these. Verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your word. Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Verse 168, I keep your precepts, for all my ways are before you. But the author of Psalm 119 doesn't just maintain his fixation on God's word in a haphazard way. Rather, he presents it as a beautifully orchestrated tapestry. First, did you notice that he interchanges eight different words to describe the Word of God throughout this psalm? In each of the verses I just quoted, there's actually a different word for word. You can pick them out. Verse 24, your testimonies. It's one. Verse 48, your commandments. Verse 92, your law. Verse 140, your promise. Verse 57, your word. Verse 106, your rules. Verse 168, your precepts. Testimonies, commandments, law, promise, statutes, word, rules, precepts, eight. Eight words. Although these words vary slightly in nuance, they essentially stand for the same thing. 
the Word of God. And remarkably, nearly every one of this psalm's 176 verses, yes, that's 176, the longest chapter in the Bible, but every single one of those verses contains one of those eight words for word. All except for four verses. But even the four that don't are still obviously referring to the Word of God. Clearly, Psalm 119 is word-focused, word-fixated. That's not all. There's more interesting intricacies to this psalm structure. Take a look at it in your Bibles. Or on your devices, they'll say the same thing. You can scroll on them as well. If you notice, it's sectioned off into stanzas of eight verses each. Each one has eight verses in it. And they're headed in your scriptures with an unusual word. The first one says Aleph. The next eight say Baith. The next eight say Gimel. And it goes on and on and on for 22 stanzas, each one with a different, different name. But what are those little names, those Alephs, those Baiths, those Gimels? Those are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. The ABCs of Hebrew. Aleph, Baith, Gimel, Daleth. Somebody could make a song if they'd like. But each stanza has eight verses that begin with that particular letter. These first eight verses all have begin with have words in them that begin with the letter Aleph. The next eight begin with words that have the letter Bait. The next eight, Gimel, and so forth. All the way to the end, the Z of the Hebrew alphabet is called Tau, and it's the last one. So if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, memorize the headings of the 22 stanzas of Psalm 119 from Aleph to Tau. And just stand back and think about that. Remember that God is the one who inspired the writing of this. He did it for us to admire and stand in awe of the precision of God's word. So let's dive in to the first 119 stanzas and let it encourage us in our fight to delight in his word. Today I'm just going to go through the first, Aleph, the first eight verses. Let's read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. 
You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Okay, we're going to contemplate what we've read in three movements. Number one, God's demand to keep his word. Number two, depend upon him to keep his word. And number three, earnestly desire to keep his word. Number one, demand. Number two, depend. Number three, desire. So first, God's demand to keep his word. Because of its introductory position, the Aleph stanza sets the stage for all that follows. In fact, the first four verses of this stanza are unlike anything else in Psalm 119. It's an introduction. It's, a, it's meant to be different, just like you read the introduction of a book and it's not like the rest. But it does set it up. I'll show you how these first four verses introduce and are distinct. Verses 1 through 3, here's how they're distinct. Verses 1 through 3 are written in the third person, which means they speak truth to the reader in third-person pronouns. They make no direct request of God. Instead, they just are speaking to us, to those of us who are listening. You can see that in those verses when it speaks of those whose way is blameless in verse 1, those who keep his testimonies, third person, his testimonies, verse 2, and those who do no wrong but walk in his ways, verse 3, those in his third person, spoken to everybody who's listening to this psalm. These verses speak of the idealized state to which all believers should aspire. Those who love God and seek him with their whole heart will do no wrong. They'll be counted blameless. Ultimately, they will flourish in all of life. They'll be blessed, as verses 1 and 2 say. Now, these first two verses with the blessed in front are meant to remind us of something, remind us of another psalm. If you remember, if you know your psalms well, the very first psalm begins the same way. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. And it sounds, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice the similarities 
with Psalm 119. Both psalms begin with blessed. Both speak of a walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 says, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 119 says, walks in the law of the Lord. One speaking of those who walk, or a man who doesn't walk in the bad way. And Psalm 119 is saying, he's speaking of those who walk in the good way. They're walking in the law of the Lord. It's meant to be a connection made with that original psalm. And actually just a little bit of information here. Every psalm beyond Psalms 1 and 2 are connected to Psalms 1 and 2. 1 and 2 are the introduction to the Psalter. They're all looking back at Psalm 1 and 2. So Psalm 119's connection to Psalm 1 and 2 we'll get to two later. There's a connection to Psalm 2 as well. It's in this, the way it starts. Blessed. Blessed are those. Now this link to Psalm 1 is intentional. It's the psalmist's way of saying, hey reader, remember the first psalm's exhortation to walk in the law of the Lord and meditate on his word day and night? Let me expand upon that theme. Let me do it in a mere 22 stanzas of eight verses each and give you a picture of what that looks like. Let's see what walking in the law of the Lord looks like in 176 verses. And what does it look like? How does one walk in the law of the Lord blamelessly? How would you think? If, if you were going to explain to someone, this is how you walk in the law of the Lord, maybe you would do this. You would say, suggest things like this. Try real hard. Give it a good effort. Or maybe you would say, obey God with all your strength. Or maybe you'd say, Remind him of all the good things you've accomplished. Tell him how good you are. Or maybe you'd say, just devote all your time, talent, and treasure to do what he demands. Now, actually, there's nothing wrong with any of that. If you are doing that, good on you. And the psalmist, actually, he's going to address the pros and cons of those try-real-hard methods as we progress through this psalm beyond the first eight verses. But that's, that's not what the psalmist does. That's not how he walks in the law of the Lord. He does something entirely different. The psalmist begins with a conversation. He initiates a conversation. With who? Who does he talk to? He talks to God. He talks directly to God. You see it there in verse 4? What does verse 4 begin with? You. You. Who's you? Well, it's pretty clear from the context that the you he's talking to is God himself. You. God, you, you've commanded. 
your precepts to be kept diligently. You notice he shifted to what we would call the second person. He moved out of the third person, his law, to the second person, talking straight to God. You have commanded your, your precepts to be kept diligently. And what's amazing about Psalm 119 is that he's going to maintain this conversation with God all the way to the end. 176 verses, well actually 172 more verses after the first four we've just discussed are going to use be a conversation directly with God. You can see this rather easily in the text that we're going through this morning. Verse 4, look for these second person pronouns. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes, your statutes. And if you look at any verse in the next 21 stanzas, you're going to see the same thing, the same pattern. I'll just pick a few at random. Verse 38 says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Verse 76 says, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Verse 151 says, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. You see, the author of Psalm 119 starts a conversation with God and never moves on from it. He remains communicative with the Lord throughout. He quotes God back to God. That's what he's doing in verse 4. You have commanded. He's telling God what he just said. He reminds God of who God is. He speaks to God about what God has done. He declares his devotion for God to God. He praises God. He makes requests of God. And he asks God for help. And he never ceases communicating any of these things. Now what do we normally call such unceasing conversation with God? We call that prayer. It's prayer without ceasing. See, that's what walking in the law of the Lord looks like. It is someone walking with God and talking with God unceasingly. So that's what distinguishes the majority of Psalm 119 from these first three verses. The first three verses are speaking truth in third person. All the rest are a prayer in second person to God. But verse 4 happens to be unique in Psalm 119 also, but for a different reason. Remember how Psalm four, or verse 4 goes? You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. 
That's, that's strong language there. That's very strong language, as a matter of fact. It's a command for the psalmist, and by extension, anyone who's listening to him, like us, to do something. It's a command to do something. We are, we are according to verse 4, to keep God's precepts diligently. And what does the word diligently mean? Well, there's actually other ways to translate it that might bring out the meaning a little better. You could translate this word diligently as completely. You could translate it as perfectly. You could even call it to the uttermost, forever and ever, amen. You see, not God hasn't only commanded us to keep his precepts, but he's, he, wants, he tells us, we need to do it perfectly. We need to do it all the time, all the way to the end. No exceptions to this. No trial periods. No, no loopholes. Now that's one huge, all-encompassing command. And it may surprise you, surprise me, but this verse 4 happens to be the only command in all of Psalm 119. That's why it's unique. It's the only verse in the psalm that makes a direct demand upon us. It's a huge ask, but it's the only ask. According to the psalmist, we must keep his precepts perfectly. All the other verses that follow are either extolling the beauty of God's commands, explaining the effectiveness of God's commands, expressing desires to fulfill God's commands, celebrating God's commands, or just asking God for help in keeping his commands. But no other verse in Psalm 19 specifies a command that we must do. You can find those commands elsewhere in Scripture, lots and lots of them, but not in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, one command, verse 4. But verse 4's call to keep his precepts diligently, that single command, happens to be a sufficient command. If someone fulfills that command to keep your precepts to the end diligently, you've kept them all. But this presents a problem. Problem is we, we can't do this. We've all disobeyed this command. All of us have failed to keep his precepts perfectly. It can't be said of any of us that we've done no wrong, as verse 3 said. None of us can be called blameless, as verse 1 said. Verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 119 seem out of reach. Who can measure up to God's demand? Can anyone truly be called blameless? Blessed? Thankfully, Psalm 119 doesn't end at verse 4. We'll move on to our next point. Depend upon him to keep his word, which is represented for us in verse 5. In verses 5 and beyond, 
The psalmist surprisingly demonstrates confidence and hope while conversing with the Lord. Rather than cowering in shame or fleeing from God's presence, because he can't keep that command, he presses in and fearlessly asks God for help. In short, he depends. He depends upon him. Listen how he does this in verse 5. Oh, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He knows his ways don't measure up, but he also knows who can fix that problem. The God who demands perfection is also the one who can steady his ways. So he asks, make my ways steadfast, O Lord, that I may keep your statutes. I can't do it, but I know you can. I choose to depend on you. But how could the psalmist be so sure? I mean, the author of Psalm 119 didn't know Jesus by name. He lived several centuries, many centuries before Jesus came. But he did know his Old Testament pretty well. He knew that an anointed one or a Messiah, a son of God was coming. And he knew that from the introduction of the Psalter. We talked about Psalm 1 before. Well, the other introductory psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. That's the one that talks about this son, this coming anointed one. Psalm 2 makes a stunning declaration. I'm going to read a few of the verses, not the whole thing, but you get the point. Psalm 2, starting in verse 6, says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then later in the psalm, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then it ends with this. Blessed are those, all those, who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in this Son, in this anointed one, who's seated at the right hand of God. The Psalm 2 gave our psalmist a picture of a promise of someone he could take refuge in, a son who would be seated at the right hand of God. And he actually hints at it and writes about it in our text. If you look at that second verse that we, in Psalm 119 and compare it to the one we just read in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 goes like this, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 119 verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Those who seek him with their whole heart. Now, anyone who's seeking something with their whole heart is taking refuge in whatever it is they're seeking. Because their eyes are 
fixed on the one they're taking refuge in. Their eyes are fixed on this son. And they're depending on him, that son, for their rescue and their solace. So our psalmist, our psalmist, he knew this son was coming. And this son, whoever he was to the psalmist, was a solution to his predicament. Though he himself could not keep God's commands, he knew someone, somehow, some way, this promised Messiah could make up the difference and do it for him. And so he depended upon him to do so by praying, begging God in verse 5 of Psalm 119, Oh, oh, let my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do it, God. I can't. Do it. And now armed with this assurance that God would steady his ways, the psalmist demonstrates some rather incredible confidence when he expresses the next three verses, 6, 7, and 8. He says things like, Then I shall not be put to shame. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will keep your statutes. The guy who can't keep his statutes is is confident now that he's going to be able to do it. He's not going to be put to shame. He's going to have an upright heart. He's not really sure how it's going to work, but he knows. He knows. You can do that. This leads us to our final point. Earnestly desire to keep his word. Desire it. That's what we're seeing in our psalmist's heart here. He's, he sees something, and he wants it, and he's asking for it. This desire is most evident, actually, in verse 7. Verse 7 is, kind of reveals it. Notice it says, I will praise you. I will praise you with an upright heart. No one praises things they don't like. If you have a disdain for a particular food, you don't speak well of it and encourage others to try it. You don't order it at restaurants. Rather, you warn others to stay away from it. I saw that on Bizarre Foods. You don't want to eat that. You concoct horror stories that vividly depict how traumatized you are by its consumption. That's not what we do with the things we like. When we enjoy something, we speak well of it. We praise it, like the psalmist is doing here. We encourage others to try it, and we do so enthusiastically, which is exactly what the psalmist is going to do for the rest of this psalm. And he's so confident in this, that he confidently proclaims in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. He promises to do the very thing God has commanded him to do in verse 7, keep my precepts. And that he prayed for in verse 5, oh, may I keep your statutes. You notice the uh, connections there? The word keep is showing up a lot in these verses. And I'm going to just take a little time to make us think about this word keep. It shows up four times. 
showed up in verse 3. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. It's in the command of verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. It's in the prayer of verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And here it is in this confident assertion of verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Keep, 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 keep. What does this word keep mean? Now in a biblical context, it seems to mean obey. In fact, that's how I always assumed. How do you keep God's word? You obey it. You do what it says. And in so doing, you fulfill your obligation. You do it out of duty. But is that really what keep means? If you look it up in a lexicon or a dictionary, you'll discover it means something different. Keep means to guard or to preserve, or to be devoted to. The idea of obedience doesn't even make the list. We don't keep things that are worthless. Rather, we keep things that we value. What has a longer shelf life around your house? Packing slips and junk mail or keepsakes? The packing slips tend to slip into the garbage, but the keepsakes remain forever. We call them keepsakes for a reason. So what if we incorporated this truer meaning of keep into our text? How would it read if we use other words for keep, like guard, preserve, devote? I'll just read the same verses we've read already with a different word. Verse 2. Blessed are those who are devoted to his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be guarded diligently. Verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in preserving your statutes. Verse 8. I will be devoted to your statutes. Do you hear the difference? Instead of obeying God's word solely out of duty, we hold fast to it out of devotion, out of desire, out of delight. Instead of keeping God's word because we have to, we keep it because we want to. Why? Because it's valuable to us. It's worth keeping. And that command of the Lord back in verse 4 takes on a whole new meaning. God doesn't just command us to obey his word diligently. He expects us to treasure his word, to be devoted to his word, to delight in his word totally and completely. And why not? His word is much more than dry, lifeless commands on a page or pixels on a screen. God's word creates. God's word sustains. God's word regenerates souls. It is life-giving in every way. 
For these reasons and many more, it's worthy of delight. It's worth keeping. So what should we do to cultivate delight in his word? What should we do to keep his precepts diligently? I'll offer up three applications, and I'll take them from verses 6, 7, and 8. Do what the psalmist suggests here. Verse 6 describes, says this, having fixed my eyes on all your commandments. So let's try that. Let's fix our eyes on all his commandments. Let's look at his word and keep on looking. Immerse yourself in God's word, both the spoken and the written forms. Read the Bible regularly, study it, meditate on it, think about what it means. And if you don't read well or don't like to read, listen to it instead. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are many Bible apps that have an audio mode. Use them. I often listen to the Word on an app at night, especially when I'm not sleeping well. Does it put me to sleep? Sometimes. But often, I actually hear God's words more clearly in the dead of night while mulling over his words in my mind. Get a lot of sermon points that way. All right, how about verse 7? Here's another application. Verse 7, the psalmist says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. When I learn your righteous rules. So, second application. Learn his righteous ruling. So I'm going to change the word to ruling. I'll explain why. The ESV calls the word rules. In other translations, you'll see it as judgments. But those two words kind of have negative connotations. All right? The rules... Rules sound like stipulations on a piece of paper, follow the rules. Judgments often conjure up thoughts of punishment, doling out punishment for crimes. If you think of that when you're thinking of learning your righteous rules, if those are the rules and judgments you're thinking of, you're not going to be praising him with an upright heart. So think of them as rulings. Rulings, righteous rulings. You see, God is a judge. He's a judge. And he issues rulings from the bench, like all judges do. Some of those rulings are to declare one guilty and to punish, but other rulings are to declare someone not guilty and to bless them, to set them free. Now, which of the two rulings do you think our psalmist is praising God for? Is he praising God because he's punishing him from the bench? No, he's praising him because his rulings are righteous. Why? Because of the very promises of God. They're packed full of grace. Learn them. Learn them, as he says right there. Learn your righteous rulings. 
Know them by heart. Recount them over and over. Remember God's promises when you are tempted to doubt or lose heart. They are a source of delight in times of affliction. That's why the psalmist says, I will praise you when I learn your righteous rulings. They are a pleasure to behold. And finally, one more application from verse 8. This one, let's stay near Jesus. Let's cry out to our Savior and be near him in our time of need. Now, does verse 8 say that? Actually, it doesn't. It's actually fascinating to hear what the author of Psalm 119 cries out in verse 8. That last little phrase there is rather stark. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. It's a prayer. It's a cry. Don't forsake me. God, don't forsake me. You see, forsake means to leave or to abandon. According to this verse, the psalmist's greatest fear was that God might abandon him, that he might leave him all alone to suffer the consequences of his own sin. There's a desperation in his cry. It's as if he wasn't sure God would stick around and rescue him all the way to the end. But you remember the author of Psalm 119 lived six or seven centuries before Jesus came to earth. He knew the Messiah was coming from Psalm 2 and other scriptures, but he, didn't, he probably didn't have a good grasp on the fact of what this Messiah was going to do. He didn't know that this anointed one was going to come and suffer on his behalf. He didn't know that this Christ was going to willingly die in his place and experience the penalty of his sin. He didn't know that Christ would rise from the dead to guarantee forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who put their trust in him. But we do. We can look at Psalm 119 in a whole other light. Because we know the one who came and fulfilled those first four verses. I mean, read them again. Jesus was blameless. Jesus walked in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, Jesus kept his father's testimonies and sought him with his whole heart. Verse 3, Jesus did no wrong and walked in the ways of his father. And verse 4, he kept the big one. He kept God's precepts perfectly. And yet, and yet, this same Jesus willingly died a death he didn't deserve. You see, he who knew no sin became sin and hung on a cross on our behalf. Yes, it was Jesus who actually experienced Psalm 119, verse 8, that last phrase. For Jesus, we can read in the Gospels, cried out while hanging on a cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Yeah, he was the one who was utterly forsaken by God so that those who put their trust in him would never be. So stay near to Jesus, church. He's the one who will never forsake us. Let's pray. Lord God, we're humbled by what Jesus has done for us, who actually fulfilled this impossible command, but did it for us. So that if we put our trust in him, we can be among those who are considered blameless as well. Lord God, I ask that you would build that truth into those who hear it today. For those who know you, that they would grow in their desire to get to know you by keeping your word, by treasuring and devoting themselves to your word. And for those who don't know you, that they would recognize what they're missing out on, that they really have no way of being rescued. unless they see it in Jesus. Lord God, I pray that you would work in hearts, save hearts, encourage hearts, and go with us as we delight in your word in the days ahead. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.